Welcome to the Hospitality Forward podcast with listeners in more than 160 countries worldwide. My name is Hannah Lee. I am president and founder of Hannah Lee Communications, an award-winning global PR agency specialized in hospitality and travel. And I'm Michael Anstendig, editor-in-chief of Hannah Lee Communications, as well as the award-winning co-author of The Japanese Art of the Cocktail and The Food and Beverage Writer. Helping the community has always been part of our agency's mission. We understand that a lot of business owners, bartenders, chefs, sommeliers, and others might not have the resources to hire a PR agency. We believe everyone has a story to share, so we created our podcast where our listeners can get to know leading reporters and writers and start building relationships. Each week, these top journalists from around the globe share their practical advice on how hospitality and travel industry professionals can be featured in their stories. In fact, one of our loyal listeners got featured in the New York Times after listening to our podcast and following our media guest tips. So, you could be next. In addition, we give away a copy of our agency's book, The Japanese Art of the Cocktail, to a listener who shares how our podcast helped them tell their story to the media. Simply email us at hello at hanaleecommunications.com, have hospitality forward in the subject line, and share the tip that you learned. And now, on with the show. In this episode, we're delighted to chat with Larry Olmsted. Larry is an award-winning journalist who specializes in travel-related topics, including culinary, industry trends, luxury, and sports travel. He's also the acclaimed author of three books, Getting Into Guinness, Fans, and the New York Times bestseller, Real Food, Fake Food. Hi, Larry. Welcome to the show. So nice to see you. It's a pleasure to be with you. You are an award-winning journalist and a New York Times best-selling author. So let's unpack your journey to journalism. Yeah. How how'd you get started? And was there like a specific eureka moment when you knew you wanted to be a writer? I was just always good at writing. It came easy to me. Uh, I was raised in a family that has a lot of lawyers and professionals and uh grew up believing that writing wasn't really something you could do for a living. It was like being a rock star, really cool if it works, but it doesn't for most people. Um, so I just sort of fell into it later in life. I had a few other jobs. I always loved writing and I wrote a novel actually that uh, I was unable to sell. Uh, I've learned that I'm not a fiction writer. Um, but during that process, I got the opportunity to start doing some freelance stories, and the first story I ever wrote was on scuba diving. And uh, I was like, my eureka moment was someone will pay me to go scuba diving. So uh, it kind of spiraled out of control from there and remains out of control today. As it should. Amazing. So tell us about the topics that you currently cover and for which publications. I mean, I think of myself as a travel writer because everything that I write about pretty much falls under the purview of travel, but that's much broader than I think people think of when they think of travel. Like, I write a lot about food, and it might not necessarily be food you have to go anywhere to. 
eat, you can have it at home, but food to me is sort of the key to, to travel. And I write a lot about skiing and golf and um, different active sports that, again, you could do at home, but I travel a lot to do them. And I think if you're passionate about it, you would. So uh, I have a column for Forbes that I've had for basically since Forbes went online. I used to write for them in print. So long time running. Uh, I write, I'm the contributing travel editor for Cigar Aficionado magazine. I do a lot of big features for them, which I love. I write a lot for United's in-flight magazine, Hemispheres, uh, MasterCard Luxury. Um, all of these magazines are, are, are magazines that still do actual travel features, which have been, you know, getting away from the industry. So I like to write 1,500 to 6,000 word kind of stories. Yeah, we, we love long form storytelling and, uh, you're certainly a master at it. So each of those publications that you enumerated obviously has its own audience, its own voice. So, for example, how is a story for Forbes uh, different than a story for Cigar Aficionado? Uh, yeah, I mean, each one has its own style. And one of the things I've become really good at is being sort of a chameleon. I can write first person, third person, serious, funny. But... Um, you know, in Forbes and what I've noticed in a lot of the shorter form journalism is it's become very press release oriented. And I don't like that. Um, I like to bring something for myself to the table for the for the reader. So in the case of Forbes in particular, I write very first person. And if I say, you know, I went to this hotel, I went to this restaurant, I went to this place and I liked it. Here's why. And here's my frame of reference. And here's, you know, other hotels of that caliber that I've been to, and here's why this one is better or worse, or you know, because it's very easy these days for people to say the ten best hotels in New York City, but you read that article and you have no idea what the, if the person knows anything or what they're comparing it to. So I try to make it very plain, give the evidence basically why if I make a statement, here's why I believe it and why you should believe it. Then how about the cigar aficionado? Like how does that different than Forbes? Uh, because they're long, you know, typically long features. And my favorite in magazine in terms of writing all those three to 5,000 word features, I can dive more deeply in. I can tell a little bit about the history of a place. And there I write much less first person and use a lot of quotes from uh, maybe other travelers or locals who've experienced it because I want to paint a picture. A anytime, my, my thing has always been if I'm going to bother writing, I want the reader to be moved by it. I want you, if you're sitting on a plane reading that article, to say, man, I want to go to Kenya and go on safari, or I want to go hiking in Switzerland. So everything I write is from that perspective to try to, even if it's uh, sub subtly, convince you um, why something is good. And I try to only write about things that I believe in. But with Cigar, it's a little bit more of I'm painting a colorful picture of the place and making you want to go there because of the what I evoke and bring to life. We are big fans of Africa and everything this beautiful continent has to offer. And we very much enjoyed your story on safaris in Namibia in Luxury Magazine. So what inspired you to write this story? You know, in, in recent years, especially with the pandemic, there's been a big increase in talk in our industry about bucket lists, right? The term bucket list travel is thrown around maybe too readily these days. And to me, 
um, people travel for a lot of different reasons, right? I love to play golf, but if you don't play golf, then you wouldn't care about going to St. Andrews or, you know, if you don't ski, you don't care about going to Corsabelle, whatever it is. But to me, uh, safari, African safari is the one trip that I can't imagine anyone not liking. You don't have to care about animals. You don't have to like go to the zoo every week to appreciate it. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that they don't, they just haven't been, so they don't know how moving it is. Uh, so to me, that's like the definition of a bucket list trip is an African safari. And because I love it, I've been, I've pitched it. I've written on different angles. I've been, uh, I don't know, a dozen times. And every time, you know, the first time you go to African safari, you should go to either South Africa or Kenya, Tanzania. Those are sort of the, you know, safari 101 uh, and for good reason. But then once you go, you want to go back, hopefully. Maybe you go to the other one. And then once you've done that, you say, well, what's next? And there's Botswana. And, and then maybe once you've been half a dozen times, like me, you, you get to Namibia. It's not, it's not the first place most people go. It's different. It's more landscape-driven uh, than animal-driven, but it's very distinctive, the famous dunes. And, you know, some people go on a cruise every year. I'm not a cruise person, but I could go on safari every year uh, if I could afford it, which I can't, but I go as often as I can. Another African country that we think people should add to their bucket list is Kenya. You mentioned briefly about it. And um, we actually, we just uh, got back from a week of travel in Nairobi. And of course, we had to go and see the animals in the um, Nairobi National Park. But what we found really interesting is this city's incredible food and drinks offerings. Yeah, I mean, we were quite surprised that we had literally one of the best omakase sushi experiences in Nairobi, as well as incredible Thai cuisine. So we see East Africa really emerging as an F&B destination. So have, have you seen this as part of your travels as well? Uh, yeah, I've seen it probably, I would say, more in Southern Africa because they have the wine culture, which any place where you have a wine culture, you have a food culture. Um, but I will tell you my interesting Kenya food story uh, is uh, when I wrote my book, Real Food, Fake Food, one of the things I talk about is how certain products, um, tomatoes, bananas, things that we get, take for granted at the supermarket are basically almost never fresh in this country uh, or never ripe, I should say, right? Bananas are picked green, they're shipped here, then they're gassed and they turn yellow. And when I was writing the book, I talked to a, a professor at Cornell Agriculture School who told me almost no one in America has ever had a ripe banana. You know, that would ripen on, on the tree the way we have a, a vine ripened tomato. And uh, I said, have you ever had a, a, a banana straight off the tree that was yellow? And he said, yes. And I said, well, what was it like? And he said, well, to be honest, I think it might be too banana-y for most people. And I, that intrigued me, right? I'm like, well, I got to have a real ripe banana. And it took me a couple of years, and I finally found it in Kenya on a roadside stand. It does change your life. I had a similar experience uh, in Peru in the rainforest, and there was, you know, this huge cluster of bananas had dropped in front of our, our little hut, and I picked one and ate it, and it tasted almost artificially flavored. <laughs> That's how intensely banana it was, and it was truly a revelation. Well, you guys get around a bit, it seems. We love to travel. Um, by the way, congratulations on your new weekly series for Whiskey Advocate magazine, where you profile the world's best whiskey bars. 
So how did it come about? Um, well, actually, it's not. It started as weekly, but I think um, it was uh, overly ambitious. So now they're running a little bit, a little bit more, like every two to three weeks. Um, but I, I've written a lot for Whiskey Advocate, which is the sister publication to Cigar Aficionado, which I've been writing for for almost thirty years. And uh, I did, I've done a lot of these. Um, 48 hours, weekends in different cities, uh, and always profile some top whiskey bars. So it sort of spun out of that concept. Um, people who are into whiskey want to know when they go to a different city who has a, a interesting selection. And, and to me, there's, there's many different things that make you a great whiskey bar. Some places are really specialized. They'll focus on Japanese whiskey or they'll focus on American whiskey, uh, or Scotch whiskey. Other places want to compile, you know, just a list that, you know, like with wine lists where there's a thousand selections and things that you won't see anywhere else, single cast bottles. Other places focus on maybe the cocktail side of the equation. Uh, and it can also just be a place with a lot of character, a lot of history. It doesn't have to be necessarily fancy whiskey. There's something to be said for places that have happy hour. Um, but, you know, something about it that would compel someone who loves whiskey to go. And, and the nice thing about it is that, that bars come in so many shapes and sizes and flavors. I mean, Michael and I are both huge fans of all things whiskey. So we are very much looking forward to reading your articles and educate ourselves and be even more inspired to travel. We'll have more additions to our bucket list. <laughs> yeah. So um, a lot of our listeners are in the hospitality and travel industry. And we know that they can be great resource for you. So in coming months, what kinds of story will you be working on that our listeners can be part of? You know, I get a lot of pitches from public relations firms and from the industry, and a lot of them, unfortunately, are kind of off base. Uh, and, and probably I would say, you know, the biggest issue is they tend to be too micro in the way that they think, you know, like we've introduced this new product or this new service, and that's worth a story when often if you think about it, like that's not going to be its own story. So I love hearing about trends and, you know, it's sometimes hard for, for a restaurant or a hotel or whatever to say, Hey, here's what me and five of my competitors are doing. But, but that's much more of a story. Um, if there's some, something new that we can talk about that you can experience in more than one place. And, you know, so basically new, interesting, but, but, significant. Um, there's things that are new and interesting, but, you know, I can't justify writing a whole story on. I, there's a new 3,500-room casino hotel opening in Las Vegas, and there's been two of those in the last 13 years. So that's significant. People love Las Vegas. There's not that many 35-room hotels, 3,500-room hotels. If there's a new really cool seven room in opening in New Hampshire. That's really cool, but it's not really a story in the same way. So it's just to me, you know, how, how many people does it impact? What really can the readers do with this information is, is, and, and if it's something that I say, wow, that's really cool. I've never heard that before. That's a slam dunk. And is there, is there anything people should avoid when pitching you? Yeah. I mean, I get a lot of pitches on personnel, your restaurant might have a new assistant manager, but that's not a story. Um, you know, I get a lot of that. You know, if obviously, again, if 
Jose Andres opens a new restaurant, you know, or um, John George Von Gerichten or, or Wolfgang Puck, that's more of a story than, you know, I get a lot of this person was the seventh runner up on the fourth season of some competition cooking show. And that does not actually make a celebrity chef, unfortunately. You know, we've been lucky to get to know you over the years and, you know, work on our stories together. Um, so we feel very grateful. But for those who don't know you yet, what is the best way to build a working relationship with you? Um, if I get good pitches and then when I ask for information on photos and things like that, I get a response that makes me want to work with you. It's easier. You know, I've got always got a lot of balls in the air and if I have to ask three times for something that ultimately is benefiting your firm, your client, and it's hard, it becomes hard for me to do, I then I don't want to work with you anymore. And conversely, if you make it easy for me, then I do. And there's a lot of times when I have to do a roundup or something and I say like, oh, yeah, I'll go here because I know I can get the information. I know I can get the pictures. It's easy. And it's shocking to me because it is a business that's based on getting press. And there's a lot of, I mean, I can't remember how many times I've gone to people and said, you know, Hey, I want to do this story on your client. All I need is some pictures and not been able to get them, you know, no visits, no, and you know, zero to me. I'm like, well, why do you even bother having publicity? And so um, for those who don't have PR agency and not necessarily know, you know, the procedures, how to pitch you, what are the three things that they should include in their email when they send you a pitch? Um, I don't even know if it's three things. It's just if the again, if the pitch itself is interesting to be an intriguing, I'll, I'll get back to you. Um, you know, it's not like about filling out a bunch of boxes, but it does really what what unfortunately you run into is 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 inavailability of photography and. To me, if it's a good story, that's not that important, but my editors feel differently. You know, they want to run pictures and they want to run quality pictures. And I know a lot of independent restaurants don't go hire, you know, photographers for professional photo shoots. And I understand that. Um, it just puts me in a tough place. So we call our podcast Hospitality Forward because we celebrate individuals and companies that are making an impact through innovation. So is there anyone you'd like to shout out? I think that the the kind of recent trend, like to me in the restaurant business in particular, there were always chains and not chains and chains kind of carry a negative connotation, but we have reached a new era of um, chef-driven brands. Uh, some of the people I mentioned, like a Jose Andres or Wolfgang Puck is a really good example, who are basically professional restaurateurs and can do different concepts and do them well and, and replicate things. So I think the idea of being able to bring this sort of knowable branded food, to, I don't want to say to the masses, but to a lot more people is, is a, is a relatively new thing. Um, you know, you had, you have, you know, Vegas was built on say doing spinoffs of, of famous restaurants and, and doing them pretty well. But for the most part, for a long time, if you weren't going to Paris or Vegas or New York or Vegas or L.A. or Vegas, you couldn't eat that food. And, and now you can. So I think the people who are building quality restaurant groups are, are innovators. We, we couldn't agree more. Actually, we are in L.A. and had our opportunity to dine at Spago. And they are celebrating 40, 45-year anniversary. 
I mean, it's incredible how they survived but continued to thrive. And, and they're keeping it fresh and dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think um, I've had the opportunity, a lot of chefs play golf. People don't realize this, so I've had the opportunity to play golf with a lot of chefs. But Wolfgang Puck, instead I went skiing with. He's Austrian, you know, so he doesn't play golf. He's a very good skier. Um, and I've always been a fan of his because he didn't just – open Spago and then say, I'm going to open 15 Spagos, right? He covers a lot of food. Um, you know, his, his Peking duck is exquisite and I've had it in Peking, you know, Beijing. So, um, you know, and, and his method has always been pick a dish, perfect it, and then make it so his chefs can replicate it. Cause he's probably not going to be in Spago when you're there, but you still want the food to be good. And, and of all, the celebrity chef, she's done probably the best job of that, of guaranteeing the quality, whether he's there or not. And we were at Spago in Singapore, and we could vouch for that one, too. Exactly. So um, uh, speaking of travel, we know that you travel extensively for your work. So what country is on your next bucket list to visit and why? Uh, well, Israel was the next uh, country I was planning to visit. And, you know, I have postponed that. And... Morocco has been very high on my list, but I'm having a little bit of trouble setting that up as well. So um, uh, I did just do an immersive trip to Greece, which I'd been to once before, but just had scratched the surface. So to me, it was almost like the first time. Very food-driven, uh, really, really uh, great trip. So, uh, God, there's, you know, it's a big world. I travel a lot, but there's always, there's still a lot of places I haven't been. Yeah, us too. There's so many lists of places that we want to travel. Yeah, I mean, Croatia, Slovenia, that whole area, um, I'm very eager to get to. So, yeah, I've got a lot of of stuff on my to-do list. Us too. Croatia is one of our favorite countries to visit. We were there like about 10 years ago for wine-related and fascinating, beautiful, like coastal area with great wines and great food. So highly recommended. All right. So why don't we circle back to your other life as a book author? You mentioned uh, real food, fake food, but you also wrote Getting Into Guinness and Fans. So you cover a lot of different topics in your books. So how do you come up with them and what do you enjoy most about writing books? I really love the research process. And uh, I mean, writing a book is has professionally been my favorite thing. You know, it's like the best article I ever wrote on steroids. Um, but um, all of the ideas have come about from my travel, something that I saw, uh, usually something, you know, getting into Guinness was, you mentioned was the first big book I did. And by big book, I mean like a real publisher, not, you know, for hire. I did a lot of guidebook writing and things, but, um, I was in Ireland and it was the 50th anniversary of the Guinness book of, of world records. And I read an article in a local paper about some of the history. And I said, wow, I don't, I didn't know that. I didn't know. A lot of people don't even know it's affiliated with the Guinness brewery that started it, even though it has the same name. People, people are always surprised by that. So I always think like I travel a lot and I've been to Ireland a lot and I know a lot of things. And if it surprises me, it probably surprises other people. I should look into this more. And that's how always how it starts. Something, Real food, fake food. I would. I had Kobe beef in Japan, and then I had um, what was claiming to be Kobe beef in the United States. And I realized that there was no way these could be the same product. And I thought, oh, there must be a reason here, and that led to real food, fake food. And so it's always something 
that I see that has this sort of aha moment that I should look into that more. And ideally, something that a million other people haven't looked into. You know, it's if you just sit down and say, hey, I want to write a book nobody's done, that's a really hard thought process. It's got to, to me, come organically from something that I see or touch or feel or learn. Do you have any more books in the pipeline? Uh, I do. I'm a little bit behind uh, on my next book proposal. It's a matter of just finishing it, and then hopefully my agent sells it. But uh, I haven't been able to do that just because since the pandemic, the travel industry has been crazy busy, and I've been crazy busy. So I can't seem to catch a moment to get squared away. And one of the other things was, you know, I've seen I've seen writers who've done maybe like a big food book and then get pigeonholed as doing food books and their subsequent work is not good, um, in my opinion. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to just write about interesting things that, you know, maybe had no relationship. I don't, you know, want to be the Guinness writer or the food writer or the sports writer, but I will, I think, be returning to food because I have a new and interesting take on it. Can't wait to read when it's published. All right. Shifting to drinks for a moment. What's your favorite cocktail and why? And who would you like to share it with? Ooh, um, that's a good question because uh, I honestly don't drink a lot of cocktails. I mainly I like whiskey and rum both quite a bit, and and tend to drink those straight. So I do like you know an old fashioned or some of the uh, some of the cocktails. But um, I've always had a, a real soft spot for. Um, the Aperol Spritz. Uh, I've been going to Italy for a long time. I actually remember when it was still a Venetian thing. And you'd have it in Venice and you wouldn't see it on every menu in the world. You know, and I guess, you know, popularity is a sign that they're doing something right. You know, it's pretty simple, but my wife also really likes spritzes. So that goes to the second part of your question, to be sitting in a piazza in Venice at spritz o'clock, drinking a spritz with my wife. You know, that's kind of what travel is all about. That is so sweet. I, I do want to add that, you know, since I know that Michael wrote, you know, this book on Japanese cocktails, I am also a fan of the highball, which I had never really I'm known as a drink until I went to Japan. And I had it, I remember, with like roast oysters cooked on a grill. And the idea that it substitutes really for wine uh, to a large degree in Japanese culture fascinated me because I love wine. And the idea that I never would have thought like, to have whiskey cocktails with dinner in lieu of wine, uh, I really came to appreciate that approach and it and it works. So before we let you go, what is the best way for our listeners to reach you when they're ready to tell your story? You know, my website basically is the same as my name, LarryOmstead.com. No A in Olmstead. Everybody misspells it. And then, you know, there's a contact form there. I honestly don't update my site as often as I should in terms of what I'm doing and what's new, but the contact does work. And uh, certainly when I write a new book or something, it'll be up there. Um, but that's sort of a, also a little bit of a snapshot. People can see links to some of my work and to the books and, and, uh, and learn a little bit more about me, but also a way to reach me. Great. Well, Larry, thank you so much for chatting with us. All right. Thanks again for your thoughtful conversation and um, look forward to sharing some April spirits together. Likewise. Now that was a wide-ranging chat with Larry. Now that you know what Larry is looking for, please feel free to reach out to him and introduce yourself. And don't forget to mention that you heard him on our Hospitality Forward podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And be sure to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Also, for all media guests to date, you can find their information and episodes at our agency's website, www.analeecommunications.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. Until then, join us as we move hospitality forward together.